Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 878. Uh, since we've been away from Luke's Gospel for uh, some time, I want to remind us of its place and role in the true story of the Bible and where we are in Luke's biography of Jesus. The, the Gospel of Luke is, is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's found in the New Testament portion of our Bibles, which recounts the fulfillment of the promises of salvation contained in the Old Testament, the first kind of two-thirds of the Bible. The Bible is a book of many books, uh, but it is a book that has one message. It is a message about the God who created the world and all that is in it, including mankind. The first man sinned against God, resulting in decay, disease, and death. But in His great love and mercy, God promised that first man and that first woman that He would one day send a son to overturn sin, to defeat Satan, and to remove the sting of death. And throughout the Old Testament, and the history of Israel recounted therein, God told us that this coming son would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And through the first 18 chapters of his gospel, Luke has been laboring to communicate to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's good promises in the Old Testament. Luke's gospel is an orderly account of Jesus' birth, his early ministry, his teaching along the road on the way to Jerusalem, and his final days in that city, which culminated in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. The, the great event which signaled that sin had been overturned, that Satan had been defeated, and that the sting of death had been removed. Our passage today is situated in that third section of Luke's Gospel that I just mentioned. Jesus teaching along the road on the way to Jerusalem. And this section is the largest section of Luke's Gospel. Uh, stretching from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the end of our passage today, Luke chapter 19, verse 48. And today, as we are walking along the road with Jesus, we walk right into the very center of Jerusalem. Look there at verse 1 of our text, Luke 19, 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. See, Jericho was less than 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. And notice that Jesus is passing through. He's, he's on His way. If you skip down to verse 29, move your eyes down there to verse 29, you'll see that Jesus makes it to His next, next destination, Bethpage and Bethany, which in Jesus' day was basically considered kind of the greater Jerusalem area. Then in verse 41, move down to verse 41, you'll notice that Jesus draws near to the city, so near to it that He sees it. And finally, in verse 45... Jesus, He makes it to the very center, the very heart of the city, the heart of Jerusalem, when He entered the temple. Through this chapter, Luke is bringing us to Jesus' final earthly destination. He's signaling this to us through these geographical markers. Jesus was knowingly walking to His death. Can you imagine knowingly walking to your death? It's a chilling thought, isn't it? Just a chapter earlier, Luke, we, we, we learned in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, that Jesus predicted that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be mocked and shamefully treated and flogged and killed before rising from the dead. What is this journey into Jerusalem in Luke 19 all about? Well, if I had to summarize this passage, Luke 19, all 48 verses in one sentence, this would be it. Jesus 
is the king who is received and rejected. Jesus is the king who is received and rejected. And what we're going to learn in Luke 19 today is that there are dire consequences for those who reject Jesus. There are eternal consequences for those who reject Jesus. So here is my plea this morning. I think it's Luke's plea to us in this chapter. Receive him as king. Rejoice in his coming. And respond to his compassion. And those three pleas will form the outline of the rest of this sermon. Receive Jesus as king. Rejoice in Jesus' coming. Respond to Jesus' compassion. Let's turn now and consider our first point. On the first leg of this journey into Jerusalem, we learn that we ought to receive Jesus as our King. Let's begin by taking a look there at the first 10 verses of chapter 19. And under this heading, we're really going to be looking at verses 1 to 28 as a whole, but I want to simply to begin with verses 1 to 10. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was, a small, he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is a short, simple, a sweet story, isn't it? And many of us have memorized the main contours of this story through a children's song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We's actually uh, not a bad word to describe his size in the Greek. The word's actually micro. Zacchaeus was a micro little man, was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. That communicates well. We see there in verse 4, right? And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. It would have been fun for Derek to lead us in that song earlier, right? Um... As, as sweet and as simple as, and as accurate, really, as that song is, it, it actually, I think, conceals something of the surprise and really the halting nature of this text. Um, it, for starters, in verse 1 there, you'll notice Luke tells us that Jesus was passing through. But then in, in verse 2, Luke says, Behold, which is a way of saying, slow down, stop, T take a look at this, see, see what I'm seeing here. There's this chief tax collector who's very rich and he's interested in Jesus. Zacchaeus, he's not just any tax collector. He's the, the chief tax collector. He's the lead tax collector for that region. He's, he's rich, which means 
that he has led other tax collectors under him to extort as much money as possible out of his fellow Israelites. Remember, uh, at the time of Israel, uh, at this time, Israel was ruled by Rome, and Rome loves its money, uh, can't live without its money. And so ingeniously, Rome hired locals to go and collect a certain amount of taxes. And they were allowed to uh, tax whatever they want as long as they reached the threshold that Rome was interested in. So they, they, they kept, they were allowed to keep whatever they collected above that determined amount. So Jewish tax collectors were considered traitors by their fellow Jews. How much more would they have been disgusted with Zacchaeus? Right? There's always more disdain for the guy at the top. With his behold there in verse 2, Lucas asking us to put our eyes on Zacchaeus for a minute, to, to watch what he does. And what does he do there in verse 4? Look there. He runs. Now, in the ancient Near East, dignified, important, powerful men in society do not run. They order others to run for them. Do you think they scurry up trees? No. Behold this man who's, who's making a fool of himself. It's this fool who is found by Jesus. He's found and called by name. I wonder, are, are you ready to be found and called by name? I think you are if what was going on in Zacchaeus' heart is going on in your heart. Jesus saw something in Zacchaeus. Do you know what it was? It was faith. It was a heart ready to receive Jesus. That's what made our king stop on that road. He was just passing through, verse 1. But because of Zacchaeus' faith, look at verse 5, he had to stay. Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. How do we know Zacchaeus' heart was full of faith? He was obedient. Jesus said, hurry and come down. And that's exactly what he did. A heart full of faith is a heart that obeys the king. Elsewhere, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Do you have a heart that's ready, that's willing and eager to obey Jesus? In verse 6, we see additional evidence of Zacchaeus' faith when we read that he received Jesus joyfully. And that word received carries with it connotations of, of hospitality, of, of communion, of, of feasting together. And this is something that Jesus has been doing all throughout his ministry. He's been eating with sinners. That's certainly the disgusted testimony of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15, verse 2. It's well known that Jesus does precisely this kind of thing. And Zacchaeus must have known that the perfectly righteous Jesus was also perfectly merciful towards sinners. Children, youth, young adults, I don't want you to miss this about Jesus. He is gentle and merciful toward sinners. Don't ever be afraid to take your sin and yourself to Jesus. He is more than eager to receive those who know and feel their need of Him. He is gentle and lowly of heart, and He offers forgiveness and rest. Now, in verse 7, we see a photo negative, an inverse image to the faith of Zacchaeus. 
we see the grumbling of those who don't like the kind of king that Jesus is. They don't like who he associates with, with sinners. Christian, do you rejoice and give praise to God when he saves someone who is totally unlike you? Or do you grumble? May, may our God guard us and keep us from all forms of racism and classism and sexism and self-righteousness. May He always cause us to draw near to sinners of every kind, all because He has drawn near to sinners like us. Notice how Zacchaeus addresses who Jesus is there in verse 8. Do you see there how he, called Jesus, how he calls Jesus Lord? Well, this is a common title of, of respect. Often in Luke's Gospel, it's kind of serving double duty, alerting us to Jesus' divine authority. Why else would Zacchaeus call Jesus Lord? Why else would he inform Jesus of his intended actions unless he now wishes to live under the reign of his Lord and Savior? His intended actions in verses 8 are also evidence of his faith. For, for true faith is a faith that repents, that, that restores, and that recognizes the needs of others and so meets them. Zacchaeus is turning his life away from his self-absorbed, greedy, and predatory consumption of money, all because Jesus turned toward him and called him by name. Has Jesus turned your life like this? Now, we need to be careful here because we don't want to get things turned around. It's not that you've got to turn your life around before you come to Jesus. No. It's that Jesus, it's that Jesus turns our lives around when he comes to us. Reflecting on uh, Zacchaeus' vow here, a vow that you'll notice there, he stood up and made in the presence of all. This vow, one commentator said about this vow, it was not made as a precondition of Jesus' acceptance, but made as a result of it. Jesus does not require Zacchaeus to change before he takes up residence with him. Jesus takes up residence, and his presence evokes a transformation within Zacchaeus. That's exactly right. So we've got to ask ourselves, have we been transformed by Jesus? Have we received Him in faith? That's the real question. And we know that by Jesus' concluding statements there in verses 9 and 10. Jesus identifies Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. Abraham was known for his faith in the Old Testament. You see, Zacchaeus is Abraham's son because he's like his father. He has put his faith in God and His promises to save, just like Abraham did. What about you? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe that He is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost? You are a son or daughter of Abraham, if you do. See, those who grumbled there in verse 7, they were right about Jesus. He is a friend of sinners. He comes to find the lost. He comes, as he says there in verse 10, as the Son of Man. And this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself in the Gospel. It's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, where the promised King of the Kingdom of God is portrayed as coming to receive glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. What has this Son of Man come to do? He's come to save the lost. And in order to serve Jesus, you've got to be saved by Jesus. The God who made us, 
knows our innermost thoughts. He knows the deeds that we're ashamed to tell others. Friend, He knows. You cannot hide from God. He, he knows that we've been running our own lives rather than living under His rule. And that's what sin is. It's, it's rebellion against God. It's rejecting His kingship for our own. And because God is eternal, just, and good, He must punish unrepentant sinners for all eternity in hell. That's what sin against the eternal God justly deserves. And yet, Jesus tells us here that He has come to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue sinners from the coming wrath of God by living the perfectly righteous life and holy life that neither Zacchaeus nor we have lived. But that is not all. And I'm, I'm kind of giving away the end of the story here. But here's what happens when Jesus gets into Jerusalem. He's put to death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was paid. He was paid the wages that our sin earned. He died bearing the eternal wrath of God against all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead, proving to us all that He accomplished what He came to accomplish. To seek and to save the lost. And friend, this salvation is available to you in and through Jesus Christ. Learn from Zacchaeus. Turn from your sin and receive Jesus with joy. Believing that he lived for you. That he died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to be sought and saved by Jesus... And friend, please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about this good news. In verse 10 there, Jesus, you see, he announced wonderful news. Sinners may come to love and serve him, but there, is some stand, there are some standing there hearing Jesus who do not, clearly do not want to serve him. A combination of, of kingdom expectations and an implicit rejection of Jesus as evidenced by their grumbling is what motivates Jesus to tell this next parable, the parable of the ten minus, as it's called. Notice how verse 11 attaches itself to verse 10. Read verse 11 there. As they heard these things, as they heard these things, things Jesus had just been saying, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Pause. Where would they get the idea that the kingdom of God was going to appear? Well, from Jesus. He, he just identified himself as the end time figure, the, the son of man who comes to receive a kingdom. All of this is true. The kingdom has come. And yet, what Jesus is trying to communicate is that it has not come in full. So faithfulness until it does come in full, is required of Jesus' disciples. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Christian, this is what's required of you. Faithfulness until Jesus returns. That's what this parable is about. It's about a contrast between those who receive Jesus in faith as their king and those who reject him. Those who live faithful lives of service to him and those who reject his reign. So let's keep reading. Verse 12 there now. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up. To Jerusalem. I wonder if you see a kind of division running through this parable from Jesus. Some citizens receive their king and some citizens reject the king. Those who receive the king labor for him in his absence. They labor to bring him honor and glory by putting what he has entrusted to them to work. Others, however, they chase him around, deride him, and despise his gifts by burying it in the ground. Don't you see that this parable is about Jesus? He, he is the king who is receiving the kingdom. And in order to receive it in full, he has to go away for a time. Only to return and bring about the end of time. In the meantime, Jesus has faithful citizens and he has enemies. Enemies who hate him and openly reject him saying, We, we do not want this man to reign over us. He's the kind of man that eats with sinners, you know. Now here's the thing we need to recognize about parables. We're not meant to kind of press every detail. Uh, parables are illustrative. Uh, they set things side by side for comparison so that we can see what's commendable and what's condemnable. Uh, we're told just enough to get the main point, which is why we're told that there are ten servants who receive Ten minus, which is just uh, one minus about three months worth of a wage. Uh, and then we're only told what happened with three of them. Uh, we, we only need to hear about three to get the point of the parable. We don't need to hear about the other seven. They're not the point. Uh, the, the point revolves around how citizens respond to the king and his generosity. And these three are enough to make that point for us. The things that are set side by side of the lives of the servants who are faithful and the one who is unfaithful. Brothers and sisters, what about us? 
What has Jesus entrusted to us in his absence that we need to be faithful with? Many things, right? But preeminently, is it not the good news that the king has come? And the news that the king is coming again. Are we being faithful with that news? Tomorrow, when, when someone asks you what you did over the weekend, are you going to mention something about Jesus? What, what about when someone brings up terrorist bombings? Why don't you mention your desire for Jesus to return and set all things right? What about if someone mentions flooding and natural disasters? Will you mention that you're longing for Jesus to return and bring about the new heavens and the new earth so that the, the creation no longer groans because it has been subjected to futility because of sin? May we be found faithful to make Christ known today and every day until the last day when He returns. Well, what else is set side by side in this parable? Is it not the, the ends of the faithful servant and the unfaithful servant. The faithful servants were rewarded for their faithfulness in the kingdom and the unfaithful servant was rewarded with eternal death for his unfaithfulness. Let us learn that you can live in the king's realm but not under the king's rule. Church membership, baptism, partaking of the Lord's Supper, giving a profession of faith does not secure your salvation. Simply living in the realm of the king does not mean you live under the rule of the king. Those who live under the rule of the king give evidence by their lives where, where faith is worked out, where it's invested in others so that they might grow in the love of their king. You know, the king even discloses there in verse 22 that this servant, this unfaithful servant, he didn't really fear him. That, that was a lie. He hated the king. He characterized the king as a, a severe man who would, who would take things from others. Did Jesus deal severely with Zacchaeus? Did he de deal severely with the blind beggar in Luke 18? Or the lepers in chapter 17? Or the man who had dropsy in chapter 14? Or the woman who had a disabling spirit, the woman who was so emotionally broken that her body was bent and broken. Was Jesus severe with her? Was Jesus harsh with those who were oppressed by evil spirits? What about the woman who bled for 12 years? Or the little girl who was dead? You know, the one that he raised back to life? Jesus, he is anything but severe. Yes, on the last day, He will deal severely with those who reject Him. But for those who come to love Him and live under His rule, He is a most gentle King. Those around Him who were grumbling about the kind of King He is, they, they don't want to admit this about Jesus. See, unbelief is a willful blindness to the mercy and grace of God. An unwillingness to confess 
that Jesus is not the problem, but that we are. Jesus is a gentle king. After we are confronted with this call to receive Jesus as king, the next thing that happens in our text is that Jesus, he is presenting himself as the king. And and the disciples are rejoicing in his coming. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Rejoice in Jesus' coming. And, And as we think through this, let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of, that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village that is in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now as we think about these verses, We need to remember what Jesus has just said. And clearly with verse 28, Luke wants us to remember what Jesus has just said in the parable of the ten minus. Remember, Jesus has just told a parable in which a king is considered a severe man by his enemies. And as Jesus orchestrates his entry into Jerusalem, his aim is to present himself not as a severe king, but as a gentle king. Jesus is arriving in greater Jerusalem. He's arriving at an interesting time of year. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus is arriving at the time of Passover. The Passover celebration is about to get underway. And at this time of year, Jews would flock to Jerusalem and fill it to the brim. The Passover celebration for the Jews in the first century was a a time of great nationalistic pride. It recalled the time when God overthrew the nation of Egypt and freed the people of Israel from slavery. In Jesus' day, the people of Israel were hoping for God to do the same thing. They were hoping, longing for God to send a king to overthrow the oppressive Roman regime and set up his end-time kingdom. This time of year would have been a time when those hopes were reaching great heights. Expectations are building. And we know that these were the hopes of the Jewish people for several messianic movements had cropped up over the years leading up to Jesus' arrival. And the leaders of those movements violently attempted to overthrow the Roman rule. Those Jewish messianic movements were all squashed with great force by Rome. And Jesus here presents a different kind of messianic movement. He presents one that is biblical and one that's gentle. Oh, he intended to overthrow oppression. But not Roman oppression, 
Jesus intended to overthrow the slavery to sin that his people had been bound by since the time of Adam. Jesus intended to do this through death. Not through the death of Romans, but through his own death. Getting a hold of that donkey was actually key to all of this. Whether Jesus knew that this donkey was going to be available through a divine miracle or through thoughtful advanced planning makes little difference. Jesus is capable of both. Having said that, Jesus' purposes for this cult was necessary. It was necessary because Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the Old Testament prophet predicted that this is how the king would come. So keep your eyes on verse 38 as I read Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Do you see why Jesus mentioned there in verse 30 that he wanted his disciples to get a colt on which no one has ever yet sat? Colt, foal of a donkey. It was a very young donkey. Jesus was consciously endeavoring to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He wanted to present himself as Israel's Messiah. As the one who, in the words of Zechariah 9.9, was righteous and having salvation. And, and what did Jesus just say in verse 10? Come to seek and save. Come to bring salvation. Even more specifically, he wants to present himself as one in the line of the Davidic kings. As the sons of David. According to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, after Solomon was anointed to be the next king, David had Solomon ride on his own mule. And when Jehu was anointed king in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, the people of Israel, they took their garments and they spread them on the ground and put them under him. Jesus is intentionally playing into the messianic expectations of the Old Testament. Now the people who are with Jesus seem to be picking up what he's putting down. They seem to be getting the imagery and the messianic promises that Jesus is purposefully endeavoring to invoke. They proclaim that Jesus is, you see there, the King who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a clear reference to Psalm 118, verse 26. Here, it is Luke that specifies what some of the other Gospels do not. There was the whole multitude, see there, of His disciples who began to rejoice and praise God. It is Jesus' disciples who rejoice at His coming as King, verse 38. And at the end of verse 38, we hear on the lips of the angels, what we hear here was on the lips of the angels at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Just after Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see the orders reversed there. Heaven had borne witness to the greatness of King Jesus at His birth. And now, some on earth respond in a chorus of praise. Heaven's Prince had come to make peace, peace between God and man. Our expectations as readers of Luke's Gospel should be that Jesus is going to be crowned King. But there are citizens of earth who do not want this man to reign over them. Everyone does not receive Jesus with joy. Because sadly, everyone does not want peace with God. The Pharisees there in verse 39, they scold Jesus for not rebuking His disciples. Perhaps they had seen or recalled Rome squashing previous Messianic movements. And they did not want to endure defeat. 
they command Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But Jesus, using the words of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11, explains that he believes that silencing his disciples would be the wrong thing to do. Why? Because now is the time to proclaim his kingship. If Jesus' disciples don't cry out, then there will be rock music. I just had to, sorry. You pray for my wife and dealing with my humor. Um, what we really need to see here is just how the disciples are filled with joy at Jesus' coming. So the joy that Zacchaeus had too, right? He received him with joy. This is the king that the world has been waiting for. He's come. Brothers and sisters, are our lives marked by joy? The king has come. Take a look at verse 37 again and ask yourself, does this characterize my life? Do I rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that I have seen? Of course, this applies principally to proclaiming the good news of the king has come, but shouldn't we also proclaim God's praise for everything else in our lives? Christian, think over your life. Think of how God has been gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness toward you. Think of how He has met all of your needs according to His riches in glory. Is your heart filled with thanks and praise? Is it filled with joy? Not everyone's lives were filled with rejoicing on that day. The Jewish religious leader's rejection of Jesus signals to us that a wider rejection, a wider rejection, a more profound rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and King is actually taking place. And this causes grief and sorrow to well up in the heart of the Savior. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 48, we hear of Jesus' concern and compassion for the lost. Let's now turn and consider our third and final point. Respond to Jesus' compassion. And as we do, read Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words we finally made it into Jerusalem and rather than this exhilarating feeling of ecstasy after this long journey Jesus is overcome with sorrow and sadness and insofar as I can tell the Gospels only record two occasions on which Jesus wept. One, when his friend Lazarus died, and two, right here, as he entered Jerusalem and prepared for his own death. 
What weighs heavy on Jesus' heart? Is it not the obstinate blindness of the people of Jerusalem to the saving work of God in Christ? Jerusalem's rejection of the Prince of Peace will, will bring an end to their peace. And here is the tragic and almost unbearable irony. As Jesus looks over this city, preparing to celebrate Passover, He knows that each and every day, several times a day, people are going to walk up to each other in the city and they're going to greet each other with peace. Shalom to you. Peace be to you. But they don't know peace. And they won't know peace. Because they don't know and receive Jesus as their king. And this does not bring Jesus any joy. He takes no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11. Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem like a prophet. Like the prophet Jeremiah had wept over the idolatry of God's people in Jeremiah 8. Jesus has been living as a prophet, teaching, confronting God's people with the truth. And they have refused to hear Him. It was the sin and obstinacy of the people of Israel that led the prophets of God, ultimately led them into the destructive exile. And here Jesus predicts that judgment will fall upon Jerusalem. Jesus predicts that the city will be so devastated that not one stone will be left upon another. And Jesus was a true prophet, just as He was a true king. In AD 70, Rome surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem. And in the end, over one million Jews were killed or died because of the war with Rome, either through violence and personal interaction or through starvation. Uh, scholar Don Carson, New Testament scholar, points out that while there have been greater number of deaths in other circumstances, there has never been so high a percentage of a, a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a gruesome affair, and if you want to read more about it, you can read it uh, by the hand of the Jewish historian Josephus, who describes the, the grotesque details. Maybe your mind drifts to the, to the wailing wall in Jerusalem today. That wall is the, the last remaining vestige of the temple that Jesus predicted would be destroyed. It appears large in pictures and in person. But it is a tiny remnant of what once stood in glory and splendor. And don't let that remaining bit of the wall lead you astray. Jesus' prophecy that they will not leave one stone upon another has been fulfilled. Prophetic language is pictorial in nature. Jesus was simply trying to communicate that Jerusalem would undergo a total devastation. And it did. As I said, none of this brings Jesus joy. He aches at the thought. And we must recognize His compassion for the city. And we too must have compassion. Brothers and sisters, we know of coming destruction. Jesus has promised that He will return as King and judge the wicked and the unrighteous. He will judge the living and the dead. And the destruction that we see in our world today ought to weigh heavy on our hearts in part because we know that the coming judgment of God will be far, far worse. 
and so in compassion, we must warn our friends, our family members, and co-workers of the coming judgment of God. We ought to tell them that now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. See Jesus' compassion. His willingness to be your Savior and come to Him. Jesus is not only a prophet who weeps of coming judgment, but He serves as a priest who cleanses the temple of God. Here we may be taken aback by Jesus' words and actions, but the truth is is that several priests throughout Israel's history acted zealously to restore the purity and holiness of the place where God met with His people. The fact that Jesus had to drive out those who sold reveals that the Jewish religious leaders, the priests themselves, had failed in their leadership of God's people. They were what the prophets called wicked shepherds. They were concerned more about payment than prayer. Jesus' actions enraged them. They wanted to destroy them. But Jesus' perspective was God's perspective on what was going on. That's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, about God's house being a house of prayer. As one scholar pointed out, Jesus was accusing his contemporaries of robbing God of his legitimate worship and of using the temple for all kinds of lawless behavior. And the chapter concludes with Jesus doing what he always does. Whenever he goes to a new place, he's teaching. And this is a a display of his ongoing compassion, still holding out hope, still saying, this is who I am, come to believe me. He was teaching daily, in public, and in broad daylight. Jesus was teaching because the people of Israel were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus taught right there in the presence of of the men who wanted to kill him. For now their their deadly plans are forestalled, but it would only be a matter of time before they figured out that they could do in the dark what they could not do in the day. Which is perfectly in accord with the deed that they were pursuing. And because of his great compassion for the city, he taught until the end. And notice how verse 48 ends. All the people were hanging on his words. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. I think we ought to wonder if Jesus continued to evoke messianic imagery from the Old Testament as he talked. Why else would people, hoping and longing for a deliverer, hang on his words? In fact, if you were to look through all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, you would find that the entirety of His message would be summarized as the proclamation of His kingship and the kingdom of God. Unlike the people standing there and listening to Jesus' daily teaching in the temple, we know the whole story. We know how it ends. But but I have a question for us in reflection on this last verse here. Do we hang on Jesus' words? Do we hang on to them? Do we hang on to Him, the one who's speaking? Are you captivated by Jesus? Have you heard the voice of the shepherd who calls his sheep by name? Have you responded to His compassion with faith? Because you know His compassion was consummated in His giving His life for you on the cross. And have you come 
to receive this King who communes with sinners like us? Have you rejoiced in His coming? Because you know that He came to seek and to save you. Let's pray together.